0: Okay, so friends, we're continuing today in our series through the book of Acts, and I know it's been a while that we've been through the book of Acts. We do want to end the whole book. We started in chapter 1, and we're trying to end at the very end. Um, and after this part of the story, which I believe ends at the end of Acts chapter 26, um, we will take a break and do a three to four topical sermon series on another topic of the Bible before we jump back on the book of Acts and end our series because we only have a few more chapters to go. But for today, we will carry on the book of Acts, and we're beginning chapter 25. And what we see God teaching us here today from this passage is the fact that He is the kind of God that can still get His way, that can still accomplish His agenda, that can still protect His people, that can still advance His mission, even when the whole world opposes Him. And if you've been around church stuff for any amount of time at all or or, or for long enough, you've probably heard people say this phrase, a peace that is beyond understanding. You ever heard that? Or we must have a peace that can withhold the dark seasons of our lives, not despite of it, but in spite of it, you know, things like that. And I've said those things a lot, certainly, but when someone actually asks us, okay, but how do I get that (laughs) peace? Like, what's the process? I think many of us would have a hard time answering that question. I know that I do. Because it's really hard to grasp, you know, the actual internal mechanics required in order for us to actually have that kind of peace that can brave through even the darkest of our nights. And what our passage talks about today is it kind of breaks it down for us. It shows us what we must understand, what we must believe, what we must accept in order to have this kind of peace that everyone seems to be talking about, but no one truly has a grasp on, okay? And it all starts, and it begins by knowing and accepting the fact that God is a kind of God whose agenda will not be shaken even when the whole world, even when our own sins go against it. That's the starting point, okay? That's what this passage is about, and we're going to tease it more as we go through it. So let's get into it and see all that God has to say about it. This is the Word of God, taken from Acts chapter 25, verses 1 to 12. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking for a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning on an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him there in Caesarea. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. Then I'm a wrongdoer, and I've committed anything uh, for which I deserve to die. I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Thus says the Lord. Friends, there's just two things that I want to point out from this passage today about what it is we must believe and accept if we want to begin to cultivate this peace that is beyond understanding. First, we've got to be convinced that God will advance His agenda through our lows. And second, we've got to accept the fact that God will advance his agenda through our lows. Okay? God will advance his agenda through our lows, and God will advance his agenda through our lows. First point, we've got to be convinced that God will advance his agenda through our, through our lows. So, let me first, before I start, remind us of what God's agenda is here in this part of the book of Acts. Well, God told us explicitly two chapters ago in Acts chapter 23, verse 11. God said that this is his goal, this is his end game, okay? His goal is so that Paul can preach the gospel in Rome. He wants to get Paul to Rome, that's it. But if you take a look at what's been going on in Paul's life, since God made that promise back then, it seems like the exact opposite has been happening, right? If you remember, currently in this chapter, Paul's been in prison for two years in Caesarea, And I have to apologize. He's not in Rome yet. Last week, I I misspoke and said Rome. What I meant was he's still in Caesarea, okay? So he's still in the Judea-Jerusalem area. He hasn't arrived in Rome yet. And he's been there for two years. Now, why was Paul put in prison in the first place? We got to go through this real quick for us to understand this passage. Because the previous governor named Governor Felix got a complaint two years ago from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem accused Paul for being a racist cult leader, who hates Jewish people, and has started a riot in Jerusalem, which none of it was true. They just didn't like the gospel that Paul was preaching. But because of that complaint, a trial was held two years ago before Felix, and Paul has been in prison ever since. So, on one side, we hear God's agenda. God's gonna get Paul to Rome. But then, we take a look at how things are going in Paul's life. (laughs) And we're thinking, not really going according to plan here, God. And and perhaps we can translate that to our own lives today, right? Because on one hand, we look at God's promises in the Bible for us, and we see that he wants us to flourish. His agenda is to bless us. His agenda is to protect us. But then on the other hand, we take a look at how our lives are actually going right now day to day, And we think to ourselves, not really going according to plan here, God. What's going on? But what God wants to show us in this passage is that it was exactly at this lowest point of the story where we see God actually moving everything forward in Paul's life. So let's let's do it this way. I'll summarize the passage that we just read briefly for us, and then I'm going to go over it again and point out the silent hidden works of God through it all, okay? Because it can be easily missed. So let me just summarize the scene that we just read. The first thing we see in verse 1 is that Felix, the old governor, that put Paul in prison two years ago, was replaced by a new governor, and his name was Festus. And as a new governor, naturally, Festus wanted to win the favor of the people, right? So verse 1 tells us that he went to Jerusalem to see the Jewish leaders there who put Paul in prison two years ago. And the Jewish leaders there saw Festus' visit as an opportunity to kill Paul. So in verse 3, they asked Festus for a favor. They said, hey, remember that prisoner that Felix left behind two years ago? I'm sure you're a new governor. you got a lot of things going on. You know what? Let us just take Paul, this prisoner, off of your hands Send him over our way to Jerusalem, and we'll just continue the trial here for you. But really, verse 3 tells us that they just wanted to kill Paul once he gets to Jerusalem. Okay. Now, Festus, being new and all, he also wanted to stick to the rules. right? So verse 4, he said, "Uh, that's not how we do things. Okay. The rules say that since Paul's trial was conducted in Caesarea, it's got to continue in Caesarea. So if you have anything against the man, bring your charges against him there in Caesarea. That's verses 4 to 5. So then in verse 6, the Jews go, all right, fine, we'll go to Caesarea, we'll do the trial there again. So they went up to Caesarea, they reopened the trial, they accused Paul of all the same things he was accused of two years ago with one additional accusation. This time, they accused Paul for also going against Caesar. The end of verse 8 tells us that when Paul defended himself, he said, I haven't committed any offense against Caesar. That means this was added to them. This was a new accusation. This wasn't there explicitly two years ago. But at the end of the trial, just like two years ago, verse 7 says, none of the accusations held up in court. No one could prove Paul was guilty. That's what verse 7 says. And at this point, the governor, Festus, could have just let Paul go. But he didn't. Why? Because he still wanted to win favor from the Jews for his own career advancement. So Festus threw out a proposition to Paul that could potentially bring Paul to Jerusalem, which is what the Jewish leaders asked for originally. Remember that? Verse 3. Look at verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? And Paul said, "Uh, No. I'm not going to Jerusalem and get retrialed there. I'm innocent. If you're going to retrial me anywhere, it should be before Caesar. I appeal to Caesar, he said. And Festus goes, Oh, okay. Uh, To Caesar you've appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. So then, later you'll see Festus arranging a prisoner transfer for Paul from Caesarea to where Caesar's at. And, friends, where is Caesar at? <laughs> he's in Rome. What was God's agenda for Paul again? For him to get to Rome and preach the gospel there. And where is Paul going now? After all of this, he's going to Rome and he gets a free boat ride. God fulfilled his goal for Paul's life using the selfish and sinful agendas of people who were against him. Now, to really appreciate God's silent work here, I got go to go the sequence one more time, okay? Just very briefly, but this time I'm going to point out the subtle in workings of God's invisible hand. First, Festus wanted to meet the Jews in Jerusalem, not to discuss Paul's case. He didn't care about Paul's case but to, like, advance his own career agenda. I think is the word, right? You're trying to be with, you know, trying to get to know the people. But unknowingly, this brought the whole Paul retrial issue back up. And the Jews who brought the retrial issue back up, they just wanted to kill Paul. But by doing this, they unknowingly started a process that would then lead Paul to Rome. And Festus, again, just wanting to prioritize his own career. He didn't want to get in trouble for retrialing In Jerusalem. So he said, No, no, no. The rules say if you want to do a retrial, do it in Caesarea. But by doing so, he unknowingly ended up protecting Paul from death in Jerusalem. And then when the Jews reopened the trial, they added one accusation about Paul that wasn't said two years ago. They said that Paul was going against Caesar. They just wanted to win their case against Paul, add more stuff. But unknowingly, this accusation gave Paul some legal basis to appeal to Caesar. Oh, you're saying that I'm committing offense against Caesar? Let's go talk to him then. However, this accusation wasn't enough for Paul to appeal to Caesar. He needed something more. And it just so happens, Festus, again, just wanting to serve his own career and to appease the Jews, he didn't set Paul free, although he was innocent and he could have. But instead, he asked Paul if he wanted to continue the trial in Jerusalem, which again, unknowingly, gave Paul finally the opportunity to say what he needed to say. No, if I'm being charged against as Caesar's enemy, then it makes no sense to me to be retried in Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar. And now he's going to Rome without having to buy a ticket, surrounded by a group of soldiers who will protect him till he gets there. God used the Jewish people's murderous intent and Festus' selfish desires to advance his own career to both protect Paul from death and get him a free ride to Rome. God was not absent in Paul's darkness. And friends, you will never have peace if you think that he's absent in yours. He's not. But it's not enough just to know that God is present in your darkness. It's not enough. This is another key point of this passage it's really important for us to know how he's present in that darkness, in what capacity is God present in our darkness. Because see, I think a lot of us mistakenly believe that God is present in our darkness only as a rebuker. You know what I mean? He's present in our darkness only as a disciplinarian. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I think, at least I think like this, and I think a lot of people do as well. We often think of our time in the darkness like this. We say, Tez, I know God is there with me, okay? But he's there with me in the dark only to rebuke me and to discipline me. Why? So that I can then grow and mature through this darkness so that later when I get out of this darkness, you know, out of this low moment and arrive at the future peak in my life, then then I'll be prepared for God to really advance his agenda in my life. You know, it is at this future peak, after I've learned everything I needed to learn in this dark, this is where the real action happens. That's how God is present in my life. But what we see in this passage today is that that's not completely accurate, is it? Yes, God matures us in our dark. Yes, he sanctifies and grows us through our pain. But that's not all he does in the dark. What did God do here for Paul? in his dark season. He didn't just mature him. He protected him from death. He freed him from bondage. He advanced Paul's life story and mission. So we can't just view the dark as training grounds for future peaks where the real action will happen. You know? God is telling us here that the dark is where the action happens. The dark is where he works. Do you ever wonder why it is you always live in the future? You know what I mean? Do you ever wonder why it is you always idolize this time in the future? And I know because I'm the absolute worst at this. If you're like me, you're always fantasizing this future peak season in our lives where everything in our life is just fitting perfectly into place, you know? (laughs) When all the dark has come untrue, where your health is perfect, and your finances are great, and your kids are eating their veggies, and your husband actually does the house chores he promises to do, (laughs) and everything's great. You're energetic, you're not stressed, there's this lightness about you, you know? And we think to ourselves... That's when the real action will happen. You know, that's when my life will be set up to really move forward during these peaks. Not now. Not in the dark. Not while everything's still out of place and messy. And you know, that's the reason why. I'm very rarely content. I am. I've been a pastor for six month for six years. <laughs> and I can count the amount of times I've been content. Maybe in one hand. Why is that? Because how often is it really our lives actually peak like that? <laughs> Where everything's well, you know. Like on average, how many times a year? What? Three to four times a year? If that. And when it does peak like that, how long do we stay in these peaks? Not long at all. Adaja, something's gonna happen. Right? And we fall back into the low. And that's why I'm really content. Because I only see God in the dark as a disciplinarian who's preparing me for these action times in the future peaks, and I miss, I miss all the action that God's doing in my darkness. This is the first thing we got to start believing, friends. If we want to have this lasting, sturdy peace that the Bible talks about all the time, We got to first be convinced that God will advance His agenda through our lows, through our darks. That's when the action happens. But the second thing we see in this passage is just as important. (laughs) And people who get this wrong, oh my, I've seen them break. I've seen them wither away in disappointment. This peace is produced not only by knowing that God will advance His agenda. Through our lows, but also by accepting the fact—the fact that God will advance His agenda through our lows, not our agenda. Let's go to our second point. Accept the fact that God will advance His agenda through our lows. See, I think we we, uh, we study passages like this, you know, and we get that God is with us in the dark. We get that He's working for us in the dark. But then, we actually go through actual dark seasons in our lives. You know, we lose our jobs. We go through really bad breakup. We go through a really hard time in our marriage. We have financial difficulties, health problems, what have you. And we say to ourselves, just remember, God will use this to advance his agenda. Just remember that somehow, in some way, through this loss... I'll end up with a better job. Or I'll end up with a better boyfriend or a better girlfriend, because there's something wrong with the last one. God took him away, I'll get a better one. I'll heal for my sickness, you know, and my life will be better for it somehow. But then, the darkness ends, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait and you wait and none of those things happen. You don't end up landing that dream job. You don't end up finding a better boyfriend or girlfriend. The sickness comes back and we wave our fists to the heavens and we say, you promised God, you promised that you advanced your agenda through the dark. Why aren't any of these things happening? Well, it's not happening, friends. Because all of those things we mentioned earlier are the list of things in our agenda, not God's. I'm not saying he can't do those things. I'm not saying he won't do those things. He might. What I'm saying is he never promised those things. You can dig down to the most hidden verses in the Bible, to the most unturned pages of Leviticus. And nowhere you will find God say anywhere in the Bible this. My plan for you is to make your earthly life as comfortable as it can be. Nowhere in the Bible does God say that. It's just not there. And I've had people leave Covenant City Church because I said what I just said. But look, I'm not saying this to rob you of your peace. I'm saying this so that you can finally be at peace. Because unless we become the kind of people who's more committed to God's agenda, rather than our own, we'll be constantly disappointed by how God uses our dark seasons. Look, that's why the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is starting to lose traction, especially after the pandemic. Everyone's getting disappointed. They're starting to see through it. Life just doesn't work like that. Nor does the Bible promise that or support that kind of worldview. True peace, friends, it's not found in the fact that God will do your agenda for you. It's accepting the fact that God has a better agenda for you, for me, and for the world. And that's what he set out to accomplish. His, not ours. Paul believe this you see through the whole two years in prison he wasn't looking to escape which would have been my agenda if i was paul he was looking at how all of this would get him closer to rome which was god's agenda it's almost like he's been waiting for this moment for two years and as soon as festus said it as soon as he mentioned the retrial paul jumped on it said i appeal to caesar he wanted, that's all he wanted to do, God's goal, get to Rome, preach the gospel there. And this is what's crazy. Paul could have been released from prison. He could have. In the next chapter, in chapter 26, a Roman king named Agrippa, who had to first hear Paul's case before he gets appealed to Caesar in Rome, told Governor Festus in chapter 26 verse 32, he said this, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He could have gone free. In other words, Paul's dark period here could have ended. If Paul wanted to prioritize his own freedom, he had outs, you know. He could have worked toward that because everyone knew that there was no evidence against him. But he chose the chains. He chose the chains. He chose to continue in his imprisonment if by doing so he could accomplish God's agenda. And you know what Paul's life would look like? In the next few years because he appealed to caesar first the boat that he gets transferred to to rome will get into a shipwreck and then he will almost die thank goodness he found um a island that he was stranded in in which then a snake bit him (laughs) in this island and he survived that all the hunger all the thirst and finally he got to rome where he would then be in house prison for another few years and then eventually die. Paul didn't appeal to Caesar because he knew his life would be more comfortable if he did that. He didn't appeal to Caesar because he wanted to escape death in Jerusalem. I do not seek to escape death, Paul said in verse 11. And if anybody else said that, I'd probably roll my eyes. But because it's Paul, I believe him. In fact, later, he was killed in Rome. Paul, appeal to caesar and get to rome because that's what god told paul his agenda was that's it me i would have been cutting down the hours oh totally <laughs> you know what i mean i would have at best i'd be in that prison eating stale bread or whatever and i'll be enduring it but through it all i'll be asking god how much longer How much longer is this going to last? How many more weeks? How many more months? How many more years will this imprisonment continue? But Paul wasn't counting on the hours at all. In fact, he chose to prolong it. If only by doing so, he could help accomplish God's agenda. This is nuts. And this isn't just passion. This isn't just passion. It's, it, it's not. It can't be. There has to be something deeper, something more. Passion does not endure for two years and then ask for more. <laughs> you know what this is? This was trust. This was trust. Paul was convinced that obeying God and remaining in the dark is much better better for him than escaping the dark by disobeying God. It is much better for me to spend my life advancing Jesus' agenda rather than my own. So keep these chains on me, Festus, and take me to Rome. You want to have this boldness that we see in Paul as you face your darkness Then first you've got to really believe that the dark is not a reroute. The dark is not just a preparatory season for future action peaks. The dark is where the action's at. And second, you've got to accept and trust that the list of things on God's agenda is better than the list of things in our agenda. But I don't, Tez. I, I've tried to believe that. I've tried to embody that. But I can't. So many years. I've tried to force my heart to believe it, but it just—it just won't. Well, maybe it's not all just about forcing your heart. I don't know if Paul quite forced his heart in that way either. Why do you think Paul chose to prolong his chains for Christ? It didn't start with Paul's own bravery. You know where it started. You know when Paul's life changed. It started by Paul seeing how Jesus willingly chose the chains for him first. It started by Paul seeing how Jesus went to the cross, and what is the cross? What is the cross, friends? If not Jesus willingly choosing chains, so that we may be set free. Jesus, like Paul, could have escaped, you know. He could have. He said, I could call the legion of angels to set me free. But he stayed. He prolonged in the dark. In fact, all the way to where he entered to the deepest of darks. Why? So that you and I don't have to. So that you and I never will. And now this same God who did that for us is saying, I have an agenda for your life. It's in my word. Read it. Would it be wise for us to respond and say, nah, I think I'll stick to my own? (laughs) Paul chose the chains for God because he knew that on the cross, God first chose the chains for him. But unless you see that, unless you truly believe that, unless that becomes more than just a legend in your heart and that it actually happened, God truly put on flesh and became one of us so that he could have hands to be nailed on a cross for our sake, unless that digs so deep in your heart, unless you love that more than anything in the world, you will never trust And love God's agenda for your life over your own. You just won't. That's where it starts. And friends, I don't know where you are right now. But if you're currently in the dark, don't panic. He's there. He's there. Don't live in the future. This is where the action is. Right now, in the dark. And don't be so consumed by looking for outs if by getting out it requires you to disobey God. May the chains that Christ took upon himself for you convince your heart that godly obedience which brings about earthly chains is much, much better than disobedience even though it might lead to earthly freedom. Are you convinced of that? For the love of Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, compels us, controls us. For wine, one died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved them and died for them. Will this be the verse that continues you in your journey till you see him again face to face like Paul? I pray that it will be. Let's pray. Father, living a disobedient life apart from your will is much easier. Will bring us Comfort and even momentary peace and calm in our earthly lives. May you have mercy on your church who desires to leave you every day, just like Israel in the Old Testament who desires to go back to Egypt every single day as you take them to the promised land. And may you set our eyes fully on the joy that is before us, for this life is but a fleeting breath. Oh my, how unconvinced we are of the shortness and brevity of life. How invested we are to this world that is not home. Forgive us, Father. Remind us of the eternity that awaits and of the joy that is before us, that we may see him again who has given all of the earthly joys he had on the cross that we may gain him. May Christ be our treasure, may he be enough, and may nothing else on this earth rival him as king in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray.